Shabbat Shalom, everyone. It's been a little while since I've done this, so hopefully I remember how to do this. All right, we've been looking at baptism. Last couple uh, weeks, we've been looking at this uh, specific elementary principle, this concept. Today, <clears throat> I want to... I want to look at something in regard to this concept that historically, uh, how would I say it? Historically, this has been a brutal point of contention. I mean, to the extreme. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about this. Infant baptism versus a confessionary baptism. Two very different ideas and understanding on how we are supposed to fulfill God's command to become baptized. Very, very different. On one side, it says, we need to do this as an infant. This must be done. It's critical that we do this, that we baptize our children as an infant, as even a young child. Whereas the other side says, hold on, wait a second. This is reserved for someone that can confess the name of Yeshua. This is reserved for someone who has conviction. And they can move on conviction in the understanding of what the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Yeshua is. I'm going to tell you, these two ideas have held so strongly to their conviction that one group, this group, historically, has been willing to kill the other group. And ironically, the other group has been willing to die for the conviction of that. Let that sink in before we even begin today. That is a powerful thought. Christians killing Christians over this elementary principle and not over the fact of whether or not we should be baptized, over whether or not we should be baptized as infants, whether or not we get rebaptized as adults. Amazing. Peel back the layers of church history. And what you'll find is Roman Catholicism was not just a church in her glory, if you will. She was the power of the state. Church and state come to, I mean, the ultimate power. And do you know that had you been baptized in that church and you went on later on in life, like, let's just, Use the Anabaptists, for example, from the 16th century. Anabaptists who had been baptized as infants, but through the conviction, reading the word of God in the New Testament, said, no, this is about confession. We need to go get rebaptized. That's why they were called Anabaptists. It means rebaptizers. And they did this. They were hunted down. It was a criminal offense. And the best case scenario would be, oh, you would be in prison, but that's not oftentimes what happened. What happened is you were beaten, tortured, you were burned at the stake, or you were beheaded. You were killed. Killed over this. And today we still have Christianity is divided on this issue, even within the ranks of Protestantism. We have some that hold tightly, no, no, we need to baptize as infants. This is, this is the truth. And the other is saying, no. We need to confess this. This is a believer's baptism. So today, what we are going to do is we're going to dig into these two sides. We're going to look at the confessionary baptism. We're going to look at the infant baptism side. And what we need to know is what side do we need to fall on? We need to know 
and knowing the history that they felt so strongly willing to kill and willing to die, that ought to tell you how incredible of what we're going to be going through today is. And so one other thing before we get going. The one thing that Christians can become complacent on, all of us are guilty of it at some point in our life, is the failure to recognize the devil moving against the church. His number one target is coming after the church, to come into the church and to pervert it. And somehow we get into the state of complacency and comfortability. No, no, you know, I've been going to my church for 20, 30, 40 years. Everything's fine. We know what, we're, we, know what we do. How do you know? Have you challenged the things that you're practicing, the things that you're participating in? Have they been challenged? And if you've challenged them, how? With your heart, with your emotions, or with the word of God? We need to remember, what did Paul say? Satan comes as an angel of light. His ministers come as ministers of righteousness. John warns us that we are to test the spirits because false prophets, many false prophets, had gone out into the world. This is what we're to do. Especially when you come to the doctrine or this elementary principle of baptism. This is foundational to the faith. This is not a matter of, well, you know, you do this and I do that, but we're both believers. Well, look at it historically. No, this is not a potato potato. This is life and death. You cannot mess with the elementary principles. This is the foundation of the faith. So with that said, I actually want to open up today by taking you to the catechism of the Catholic Church. And I own, the, 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 I actually own a couple copies. Um, I'm going to tell you this before we get into this. Hands down, as much as I have studied, as much as I have read, this is, hands down, as far as a literary work, one of the most impressive, most magnificent literary works I've ever dawned upon. It is mind-blowing. Every word so carefully penned with precision and articulation. Unbelievable. And what it is, if you've never read the catechism, it is why the Catholic Church does what it does. And you get to the end of this thing, you have an unbelievable understanding of the, the do's, the don'ts, the ins and the outs. Absolutely amazing. And so an incredible read if you're looking to understand Catholicism. And may I add... You need to understand Catholicism. You need to start to learn your church history. It's critical. Those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. Amen? With that said, I want to take you here. It addresses baptism of infants. The baptism of infants. And so with that said, we're going to go, and this is what we read. Born with a fallen human nature, entainted by original sin, children also have a need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of the freedom of the children of God, to which all men are called, continuing on. The sheer gratuitousness, which is to say unwarrantedness, of the grace of salvation is particularly manifest in infant baptism. Now listen to this. The church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God 
were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. Now this is unambiguous, carefully penned. And what it's saying is, is if a parent has a child born, boy, girl, and they don't baptize him right away, and you go a month, maybe two, maybe three months, and find out the child dies, unfortunately. Horrible something happens. What this is saying is that that child is in jeopardy of losing its salvation. This is what it's saying. Now, the first thing I want you to appreciate is this, and this is something I appreciate about what is articulated here. You can feel their urgency. You feel the urgency, the need for baptism when you read this. It's coming through the page loudly. I appreciate that. That is a beautiful thing. The problem I have is that it's being applied to an infant. Why do I have a problem with that? I have a problem with that because an infant has no understanding of the gospel. An infant cannot confess Yeshua as Lord. An infant cannot have that conviction, embracing that conviction, and turn in repentance to go into those baptism, that baptism, those waters of hope. An infant can't feed itself. It can't do any of these things. This is problematic. And again, why is it problematic? Scripture is very clear. There are requirements to entering into Yeshua's baptism. There are requirements. And let me just take you back to our last message for a reminder. Now, as they went down the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? What are the requirements? What must I do? Philip answers and says this, if you believe with all your heart, you may. See, this is where you get into the believer's baptism. You must believe. You have to have this component. And then it doesn't stop there. What does the eunuch respond? He confesses, I believe Messiah Yeshua is the son of God. There is confession. There is belief that is embracing. Now you can go to those waters of hope. Now you can enter into that. What does Paul say in Romans 10, 9? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Yeshua and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Understand there are requirements as we go into baptism. These things an infant cannot do. Now, let me take it a step further. When you think about this for a second, ponder this for a second. Are we in the habit of burying people alive? I ask the question because according to Paul in Romans 6, he's very clear what baptism is. It's about going into the death, into the burial, being buried with Mashiach, with Christ, and rising up to resurrection where we are a new creation. It's all about being buried in his death. And so I ask, are we in the custom of burying people alive? Who do we bury? We bury the dead. Then why are we burying infants that have not been slain? That have not been slain by the law that has showed them where there's a conviction that overwhelms them that I am a sinner and I need a savior. This is not supposed to be. 
Children who are infants and even young children, they're in a state of innocence. They are. They're in a state of innocence. They come under the protection of their parents. Let me take you to the Torah. I want to show you something the Torah says here. It's amazing. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil. Children. The Torah recognizes They're in a state of innocence. They don't know the difference between right and wrong. They can't change their diapers. They can't feed themselves. They rely upon their parents to do that. Very important. Going back to the catechism, we're not done. The practice of infant baptism, now listen to this, is an immemorial, which is to say an ancient tradition of the church. Did you see that? The practice of infant baptism, it doesn't say, is an immemorial or ancient command of the Bible. It's an ancient tradition of the church. As we, we're peeling back some layers here. It goes on and says this. There's explicit testimony to the practice from when? The second century. It doesn't say the first century. Why is that important? Because that would refer to the New Testament. That would refer to this word of God. It refers to later on, what men are doing later on after the apostolic generation. That's important to note, continuing on. And it is quite possible that from the beginning of the apostolic preaching, when whole households receive baptism, infants may also have been baptized. Now I'm going to tell you, pay close attention to this paragraph right here. Because this is the justification for baptizing infants. We are using descriptors like tradition of the church. Quite possible and may. I'm going to tell you, this is anything to me but compelling. To me, this is frightening. I don't hang on something so critical where you had Christians killing other Christians for this very act I need to know where we stand. I need to know that we stand on the word of God. What the apostles were preaching, teaching, and practicing. Not maybe, it's it's possible, and then to tell me, well, this is tradition. This is not where we need to be, amen? Having said that, there's one thing I want to focus in on, in all fairness, and this is what we need to look at. Getting into the fact that they make the statement, whole households, in quotes, received baptism. Infants may. You need to understand, this comes from the New Testament. And we're going to go to the New Testament to look at exactly what they're talking about. So that we can see, does the New Testament say infants are to be baptized? i got to be honest with you, I'm not partial. If the New Testament says that this is a practice we're supposed to do, we're not having a conversation. Because the New Testament declares it. Well, let's go to these passages that it's referring. The first passage I want to take you to is Acts 16. And in Acts 16, the backdrop is, is Paul and Silas have been thrown into prison. And um, at midnight, they're singing hymns, they're praying to the Lord. An earthquake happens. And all of a sudden, and it's very clear, if you go home and read it, I, I didn't put the whole thing up here. But you go home and read it, something interesting happens. All the chains of the prisoners fell off. Not just Paul and Silas. It's an amazing thing. All the prisoners are set free. The jailer wakes up in the midst of this, is terrified. 
because he's, he's ready to take up his sword and kill himself because that's what would have happened. He would have been killed if the prisoners had escaped on his watch. And so he's ready to kill himself, but fortunately, Paul says, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. At which point we read this. Then he called for a light, ran in, fell down, and this is the jailer coming in before Paul, fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe, believe on the Lord Messiah Yeshua, and you will be saved, you and your household. See, that's where that term, that's what they were referring to in the catechism. You and your household, you need to believe. Okay, moving on to verse 32. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Now keep in mind, they're expressing the gospel. They're taking the time to explain what Yeshua did for them, the hope that is in them, but also the condemnation that if they do not accept him, they're going to be judged, they're going to be killed. You need him. So they're taking the time to express the gospel. And to all who were in the house, and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes. You can see the power of God coming over him, love pouring out of him. And what? Immediately. And then that's interesting. Do you remember in our last message, one of the things we talked about is the urgency? Everywhere you look, there's urgency behind going to get baptized. It says immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now, this is one of the passages that they are utilizing to say, see, there's proof. This is why we baptize infants. We baptize infants because his whole family was baptized. But the problem with that is, is number one, it doesn't say there were infants. It doesn't even say there were young children. You have to interpolate that into the text, meaning you have to read that into the text. I get concerned when the only way that I can justify my theological position is by reading words into a text that are not there. That is a huge concern. It should be for everyone. Let me take you to another passage of which this was also alluding to. 1 Corinthians 1.16. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Corinthians and Tell him he baptized the, the whole household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized uh, any other. Another example, this is, this is an actual example that will be utilized to show infant baptism clearly was done. Paul baptized infants. Again, it does not say that. You have to read that into the text, but here's what's interesting. I'm going to take it a step further. There's a comment on this very act at the end of the epistle. And there's something interesting that is said there that absolutely does not allude to the fact that there were infants or even young children there, but rather adults. And let me read it. Going to the end of the epistle, we read this. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints they jumped into the ministry. These men jumped into the This is not something an infant would typically do, okay? This is just not something that even young children do where they devote themselves to the ministry. This, is, this passage, if you're gonna allude to anything, it alludes to the fact that these were people of sound mind that can serve in the ministry. They made a conscious decision. The bottom line is this. Just go home, you don't have to believe me. I encourage you to read the New Testament cover to cover and you will not find one single solitary verse, not one, that shows an example of infant baptism. 
doesn't exist. Take it a step further. You will not find one single instruction given to men that we are supposed to baptize infants. There is no command to do it. It doesn't exist anywhere. So where does this come from? Why has this been something that is so crystallized in Roman Catholicism and even boiled out into some Protestantism as Protestantism was birthed out of Catholicism? We'll go back to the catechism. They tell us the tradition of the church. And not just the tradition of the church, but the fact that men were doing it early on. Professing Christians were practicing this. And therefore, that's where we hang our hat because of that. I want to show you some church history so that you have a backdrop as to where Roman Catholicism is coming from and even some Protestants, where they're coming from. Why would they participate in this? Why would they embrace this ideology? And why have men been dying for it? And why have other men have been killing for it? This is what we read. I want to introduce you to Cyprian. And Cyprian is called Cyprian of Carthage or Bishop of Carthage. It's important to note when he lived very, very early on at the turn of the third century. This is very early church history, right? The fact that he's from Carthage is a point of interest. Do not forget this because we're going to come back to this. But the fact that he's from Carthage, put that on the shelf. Well, we have some of his writings. And one of the writings is to fight us on the baptism of infants. I want to read to you what is said. And this is such a rare, I love this. It's such a rare and unique look that we get to peer in and, and kind of be that, whatever you call a fly on the wall and see what's going on. That we have this recordation today is amazing. But this is what we read. But in respect of the case of the infants, so this is Cyprian which you say ought not to be baptized within the second or third day after their birth, and that the law of ancient circumcision should be regarded, so that you think that one who is just born should not be baptized and sanctified within the eighth day. We all thought very differently in our council. Now, the first thing that you got to understand here is that this is not an infant baptism thing against a believer's baptism. No, 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 no. This is an in-house dispute. This is all within the realm of the arena of infant baptism. They are pro-infant baptism. And, and what Cyprian is calling Phytus out for is Phytus has come on the scene and he says, listen, I'm looking, I'm studying scripture, and it is clear, I'm looking at the ancient traditions of Israel. And what they practice is, as infants, they did not circumcise their children within the, within the second or third day. They waited till the eighth day. Therefore... We should use that as a precedent, Cyprian. This is what, because Phytus is out teaching this. We should use that as a precedent, and we should not baptize these children until after the eighth day. To which Cyprian responds and says, nonsense. They should be baptized immediately. Now it goes on, and this is what we read. For in this course, which you thought was to be taken, no one agreed. But we all rather judge that the mercy and grace of God is not to be refused to anyone born of man. For as the Lord says in his gospel, now pay attention, the son of man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. As far as we can, we must strive that if possible, no soul be lost. Now, I highlighted this portion. He is quoting scripture. 
This is important to note. Cyprian, to justify his position, to take Phytus down, and his position that, no, immediately, we should be baptizing the children. No need to wait eight days. And how does he prove that? He goes to Scripture, and he quotes Scripture. But pay close attention. Where does this Scripture come from? It comes from Luke 9. That situation where they went into a Samaritan village and they rejected Yeshua. And James and John say to Yeshua, should we call down fire from heaven? And Yeshua says this, no, the Son of Man did not come to destroy, but he came to save. That's the context. Yet Cyprian is pulling this out and saying, this refers to proof that you need to baptize your infant. Now see, again, I get really concerned. And this is not something that is totally abnormal to the early church fathers. To see this, I'll give you another example. Ignatius, condemning Christians, these are other Christians. Ignatius was condemning uh, Christians who were observing the Sabbath. They were actually resting on the Sabbath. And what does he do? He pulls out 2 Thessalonians, that's what he did. He pulls out 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. And he applied that verse to Christians that were observing the commandment of God. He totally ripped it out of context. And what's funny is Paul's point was that neither if you, were, if you don't work, neither shall you eat. They were not working the six days. They were totally failing in this. And this is what they were supposed to be doing. But he comes on the scene and draws out scripture totally out of context. Be careful. Be careful. And when you read the early church fathers, you find this from time to time. Now, I'm going to be very clear. It's not all the time. I have read wonderful and beautiful things from the early church fathers. Absolutely beautiful. But you got to be careful because when they go to justify their position, people get desperate because they, sometimes they just want to be right. Sometimes they want to read their will into the word of God. It has to be within context. And so this is of concern to me. Cyprian's proof of this, just in infant baptism alone, is he's drawing something out that had nothing to do with baptism. The act of it, and the point of when we should be doing it. Nothing to do with it. Let me introduce you to Origen. Origen, from the same time period. In the church, baptism is given for the remission of sins, and according to the usage of the church, Baptism is given even to infants. If there were nothing in infants which required the remission of sins and nothing in them pertinent to forgiveness, the grace of baptism would seem superfluous, which is pointless. In other words, what he's saying, he goes, if there was no reason to baptize them as as infants, we wouldn't be doing it. But there is because they were born. It gets into the original sin concept, exactly what the catechism was going through. So he's saying that this is it. Why am I showing you this? I, I show you Cyprian. I, I show you Origen. I'm showing you this because it is an absolute fact, historical fact, that men were practicing infant baptism and they were teaching it. Prominent men who have influenced the church dramatically. Let me introduce you to another man. Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo, this great theologian, the great philosopher, getting into the 4th century. So we're seeing some continuance here, some consistency, if you will. And Augustine says this, Even so, however, perhaps we must revert to the tenet, which I mentioned just now, that infants ought to be 
baptized. Because although they are not sinners, they are yet not righteous. Interesting. His take is very interesting. He goes on, Even an infant, therefore, must be imbued with the sacrament of regeneration, lest without it his would be an unhappy exit out of this life. And this baptism is not administered except for the remission of sins. Now, I highlighted this because this reverberates exactly what we read in here. Exactly. If you do not baptize your child immediately and that child passes away before you baptize him, he could be lost or she could be lost forever. Think about that. Continuing on. And if anyone seek for divine authority in this manner, though what is held by the whole church and that not as instituted by councils, but as a matter of invariable custom is rightly held to have been handed down by apostolic authority, still we can form a true conjecture of the value of the sacrament of baptism in the case of infants. How? From the parallel of circumcision, which was received by God, God's earlier people. Now, again, I highlighted this because you do need to understand that one of the precedents that Catholicism is standing on is circumcision. Now, while there may be debate such as Cyprian to Phytus that, you know what, well, we're not supposed to take it hyper-literally that to wait to the eighth day, be assured there is a consistent consensus of utilizing circumcision as a precedent. In other words, you have to think it through. The, children, the, 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 the people of Israel were in the custom of circumcising their infants, their children, after, on the eighth day specifically. But this was the custom. And so the church is saying, well, that makes sense then, because we're going to do this with, with baptism. Here's your problem. Circumcision is a mark in the flesh. Baptism is a mark of the spirit. It is a spiritual. There is a circumcision of the heart. There's a conviction, there's a belief, there's a confession. Very, very different. While we could talk about the parallels, and that's wonderful, they're taking it to the literal status. And this is the cleverness of the evil one. Very, very clever. So we look at Cyprian, we look at guys like Origen, uh, Origen of uh, Alexandria, we look at uh, Augustine of Hippo, now, this is worth mentioning. Cyprian's from Carthage. Uh, you have Origen from Alexandria. And you have Augustine from Hippo. It's interesting to me that geographically Hippo is right next to Carthage. And then, of course, Alexandria is you know, not too far. That would have been Egypt, right? But you're all at the north point of Romish, Romish Africa. They're all right next to each other. So you can see this, this, this idea is very condensed in that manner. Here's what we're not told, oftentimes. There were others who are exalted, respected, early church theologians, apologists, scholars that fought against infant baptism. They're even mentioned in here, not in that context, but in other things. Men like Tertullian. Tertullian, this is interesting, he's from Carthage. And get this, he's before Cyprian. He came on the scene before. He's second century. Cyprian's at the turn of the third century. He is second century. And we know that infant baptism was starting to creep in to the church because Tertullian was an apologist and he went and fought against it. I want to read to you 
what he says. Tertullian says, and so according to the circumstances and disposition and even age of each individual, the delay of baptism is preferable, principally, however, in the case of little children. He could not be clearer. What he's saying is he's like, with our children, our little children and our infants, delay baptism. Do not go into it. Because what does Tertullian understand? He understands exactly what the Torah said. There's a time of innocence for these children. They know neither good nor bad. You go into the baptism of the Messiah Yeshua, you have to know what bad is. It's you. It's the fact that you failed, that you sin. We have to confess that. Now, moving on, he says this. The Lord does indeed say, forbid them not to come unto me. Now, this is important. Forbid them not to come unto me. He's quoting Matthew 19. And why do I say this important? Because this is one of the primary passages that are used today to prove that this is what we're supposed to be doing. Infant baptism is it. It comes from, you know, where people want to bring their little kids to Yeshua. And the disciples are preventing me. He said, you know, prevent not the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of God. Why were they bringing them to Yeshua? They were bringing them to Yeshua so that he could lay hands on them. This is not, they were not bringing him to Yeshua to baptize them, to have Yeshua baptize them. That is critical, but to lay hands. And then we're going to be talking about that very uh, elementary principle next week. We're going to get into that, and we'll probably circle back uh, that particular story. He came, they wanted him to lay hands on them. This is a completely different situation, but this scripture is being utilized, and it was utilized in the second century to say, ah, this is what we need to do. So here we go again. People are willing to come out and use scripture, but totally out of context, and Tertullian is calling them out on it. And this is what he says. Let them come then. While they are growing up, let them come. While they are learning, while they are learning whither to come, let them become Christians when they have become able to know Christ. Why does the innocent period of life hasten to the remission of sins? Exactly what the Torah reveals to us. See, again, you don't bury an infant alive until the law has slain him. That that cannot happen. Let them... Know how to ask for salvation, that you may seem at least to have given to him that asketh. Amazing, he's pulling at Tertullian's quoting scripture, he's quoting Matthew 7. Ask and ye shall receive, seek and ye shall find, knock and it will be opened. That is a personal invitation for a personal relationship with the Messiah Yeshua to every one of us. Where we consciously make the decision. We have to make that decision. Let me take this a step further. I want to go back before Tertullian, but I want to come after the New Testament. The earliest, essentially the earliest Christian writing we have is the Didache. Most scholars attest that this was actually written by the end of the first century. Some say maybe early second century. But this is as early as it gets. We've already looked at the Didache to some extent. I want to take you back there. I want to show you what it says in regard to baptism. It's very specific. The Didache, this whole section is, is focused on giving instructions on baptism. And this is what we read. Now concerning baptism, 
Baptize as follows. After you have reviewed all these things, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in Mayim Chaim, living, running water. If you have no running water, then baptize in some other water. And if you are not able to baptize in cold water, then do so in warm. I'm moving to verse three. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so you look at this, you say, okay, start with this water. If, if you got living water, if you can't find that, then do this. What do you get from this? This is something we talked about. You get urgency. Whatever it takes, this person needs to get baptized in the name of the Lord. Even to the point that if there's no water, then according to this instruction, you pour water three times on his head. Now, continuing on verse four. And before the baptism, let the one baptizing and the one who is to be baptized fast as well as any others who are able. Also, you must instruct the one who is to be baptized to fast for one or two days beforehand. Twice it's repeated. This is the most critical instruction that he can give regarding immersees, those who are going to get baptized. They need to be fasting one to two days. Is this something that you would commonly do with children? Absolutely not. With infants? Absolutely not. In fact, what you would find traditionally, commonly, what was even on Yom Kippur, children do not fast. An absolute mandatory day to fast. And the young children do not fast. So you look at the earliest attestation, you look even at Tertullian, who precedes Cyprian, and it's from that same area of Augustine, and, and, or, you know, as far as Africa, Augustine and uh, Origen. I mean, look at this. You can see the devil working. There's contradictions. There's divisions. There was divisions then. And the division continued until the point of death where all these people are being killed because they're not, because they're getting rebaptized. I mean, these people, a lot of the people that were killed were baptized in the church as infants. But because they went and they rebaptized, they were put to death. I want to forward, move forward to the 1900s. This is a commentary. Dr. A.S. Crapsey, formerly Episcopal rector in Rochester, made the following statement in the introduction to a sermon in defense of infant baptism. Now, we're going to pause right here. Now, if my memory, and, and I could be wrong, so don't quote me, but I think Dr. Crapsey actually, I think his father was an attorney. He is going to give a message defending infant baptism. When you read what we're about to read, you can realize it's a good thing he wasn't an attorney because this is not a good defense. Listen to what he says, and this is why I'm showing you. This guy's coming from the other side of the fence to purport infant baptism. Listen to this. Now, in support of this custom of the church, we can bring no express command of the word of God, no certain warrant of Holy Scripture, nor can we be at all sure that this usage prevailed during the apostolic age. From a few obscure hints, we may conjecture that it did, but it is only conjecture after all. It is true, St. Paul baptized the household of Stephanus, we looked at that, of Lydia, and of the jailer at Philippi, we looked at that. And in these households, there may, be, and there may have been little children, but we do not know that there were, and these inferences form but a poor foundation upon which to base any doctrine. Better say at once and boldly that infant baptism is not expressly taught in Holy Scripture. You get that point, it, 
This is a moot point. Having any more of a conversation about this is dead. He goes on, says this, not only is the word of God silent on this subject, but those who have studied the subject tell us that Christian writers of the very first age say nothing about it. It is by no means sure that this custom obtained in the church earlier than in the middle of the second or the beginning of the third century. And that's an absolute fact. You saw it today. It's true. Dr. C.M. Mead, in a private letter dated May 27th, 1895, and, and again, I show you this intentionally. Though a congregationalist, I cannot find any scriptural authorization of pedobaptism. Cannot do it. I mean, these are people that are pro-infant baptism and there's no support, scripturally speaking. Again, this is where I have a problem. This is why we need to be looking at this. But that's not all is said here. Look at what else he testifies to. And I admit also that immersion seems to have been the prevalent, if not the universal form of baptism at the first. Mikvah, going through. See, what you need to understand, this is interesting, that, and there's other commentary I'm not going to show you, but it would blow your mind in regard to Roman Catholicism. But infant baptism, it's common for sprinkling. You're simply, you're not going to, the child's not going to go through, you're not going to, dunk this the child in, in, in water, the whole entire body under. It goes hand in hand, the sprinkling of water versus the immersion. And what this doctor said, he's very specific. He goes, you go all the way back and everything points to the fact that it was always immersion. And you go to the, go to the, look at the Jewish people in the first century and how they were practicing their faith. There's no question about it, but let me take it a step further. All you need to do is go to the New Testament. Look at the word for baptize. Just go through it. I'll put it up here in Greek. It's baptizo. And literally means to submerge, to baptize, to immerse, literally dip under. Baptizo implies submersion, immersion. How is it that we could come so far off the mark on something that is so critical to the faith, this baptism? Again, I, I, I remind you, the devil, he does not want us to do what God wants us to do. And that's his sole goal, is to come and interrupt us from actually doing that. One more thing I'm going to mention in closing, and we got to go back to the elementary principles for this. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Mashiach, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, and a faith toward God of the doctrine, right? The doctrine of what? Baptisms. Why am I highlighting this? There is a lot of discussion in regard to what is the writer of Hebrews talking about? There's discussion on this, at least in the scholarly realm. There's discussion because the actual word that is used there is in the plural, it's baptismon, right? and, and you know, coming from the baptismos, okay, different case. Baptismon, all right, and you look at it, it simply means ablution, baptism, washing. But here's what's interesting. Where the discussion comes in is that this is a word that is being utilized regarding the washing of pitchers and cups. And so is the writer of Hebrews, is he actually referring to the baptism of Yeshua, or is he referring to some other baptisms, more ritualistic purification of, 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 of cups and, and plates and so forth. The answer to that is 
There, we can be for certain what is being talked about by the context. The context is very clear. We are dealing with the elementary principles of the Messiah Yeshua. The very first things that we need to possess. And we know for a fact baptism is one of them. That is the New Testament testimony. But we can take it a step further. It's interesting how the writer literally structures the elementary principles. In other words, the first one is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. He takes, and, and scholars recognize this structure, that, that this is not haphazard, this is not random. The writer intentionally does what he does here. And what he does is he had, we have six elementary principles. He groups them in three groups, two, two, and two. The first two is repentance and faith toward God. Those go hand in hand. The next two go hand in hand. Baptism and the laying on of hands. These things go, they connect. their hand in the glove, if you will. And how do we know that? Well, what did we read in Acts 19? Let me go back there. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Messiah Yeshua. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Yeshua. But then going on, and when Paul had what? Laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now you need to understand, this is the expectation. This is something you would expect to see with someone going through baptism is the laying on of hands. And so when the writer in Hebrews 6, with the, the, the broader context and the immediate context, tells you exactly what baptisms we are talking, we're talking about the men, the, 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 the Jew and Gentile coming in all over the world, coming in and performing these baptisms, the, the, the baptism of the Messiah Yeshua. 